Well, uh, let me just say good morning to you again. Uh, for those of you visiting, let me just welcome you to Christ Church. It's good to just have you worshiping with us this morning. If you have a Bible, you can open up to uh, Luke chapter 10. Um, we're going to be looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan today. We're going to be studying the, uh, Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, uh, from Galilee to Jerusalem, where he's going to die on the cross uh, in, uh, in Jerusalem. Um, over, from now till about May, so um, we're just this is our third week into that. Um, the, the passage we're going to be looking at is also printed for you in the bulletin, so you can follow along. Um, we're going to now look at uh, Luke chapter ten, and uh, there, I, I, there's some other verses in this reading, um, but we're mainly going to be looking at uh, the the passage uh, of the good the, the Good Samaritan. So this is Luke chapter ten, starting in verse twenty one. Let's uh, let's look at this together. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit, that's Jesus, and said, I thank you, Father, the Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is, it written, uh, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly, do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him, and beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him, And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord, and it's for our good. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you do uh, save us, reveal yourself to us, baptize us, and bring us into this community. We ask that you would teach us compassion, change us, and we ask that you would use this uh, powerful story that Jesus told, that it would actually work on us uh, and work in us. So uh, give us your Holy Spirit to be our teacher now as we, re- as, uh, we study and think about these things. And we pray that you would, in fact, put them into action, um, and that we would be a church of compassion. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. 
So um, I've, been, I've been reading a book the, the past, this past couple of weeks by uh, Tim Keller. Tim Keller's a, a pastor in Manhattan who uh, he's someone that's influenced me quite a lot. And he has a, a new book out called Generous Justice, which is about the Christian's responsibility to care for the marginalized and the weak and the poor. And uh, he tells a story in, in this book about uh, how when he, he was a pastor in Virginia, when he was, he was about 24, 25, he became a pastor in Virginia, uh, kind of small, blue-collar blue town. And, um, and in, in his church, there was a gal who started coming. She was a single mom um, uh, who li- actually was literally the church's neighbor, lived in the house just right next door to the church. And, and as she'd been coming for a few months, it became apparent to a number of people in the church that she was having s- significant financial trouble and uh, was having trouble paying the bills and taking care of her kids. And so the church said, hey, we need to do something about this. And at that time, Tim Keller had been doing his uh, doctoral dissertation on the role of a diaconate, you know, so that historically the deacons in a church would take a gal like this, make sure she's taken care of, help her out. And so the deacons started talking with her. They uh, paid for the bills that were past due that she needed help with. And um, a few months later, about three months after they paid about three months of bills, uh, they found out that what she had done when they'd given her the money uh, to pay these bills was she actually spent it on, like, sweets for her kids and went out to restaurants multiple times and uh, actually bought each of her kids a new bike and didn't pay the bills. And uh, so, you know, one of the deacons was just furious. And he said, this is, this is why she's poor. She's irresponsible. Look at what, look at, we gave her this money and she, she didn't even pay, pay the bills. She's being irresponsible. And, you know, that's why the church, we, our focus isn't on, you know, giving handouts to the poor. That shouldn't be our responsibility. Our responsibility should, uh, should be to save souls, to preach the gospel and save souls. That's what we should be doing. Well, um, you know, uh, Tim Keller kind of coached the guy along, and they, they kept working with this gal. And uh, as it turns out, as they explored this more, the reason why she was spending the money that way is she said, you know, I just feel a ton of guilt and shame that my kids don't have a normal life. And when this money finally came to me and I had a chance for a minute for them to feel like a normal kid and to have normal things, I just couldn't resist it. And I just wanted them to feel like, at least for a moment, like we're a normal family. We go out to dinner, you, you get to have a bike. And all the deacons were like, okay. Not that it was, that was still not the right decision of how to spend the money, but all of a sudden, this is a complex situation. This isn't just she's poor and irresponsible and she got herself into this mess. There's a mix of things that are going on. It's the circumstances that are causing her to make bad decisions. And she makes bad decisions, which make her circumstances bad. And, uh, you know, poverty uh, is always that way. It's not one way or the other that people make bad decisions and that's what gets them into it. Or, um, you know... It's just they're victim and, and bad things happen to you. It, it's a mixture of all these things. What we have in this passage is that, um, you know, we're talking about this, this section in Luke, which is an in Jesus' intensive um, training on what it means to be one of his disciples. And what we have here is that what Jesus expects for his disciples, for his followers, for his people, is to step into that kind of the complexity um, of, of poverty and to walk into it with compassion. 
That should be the signature uh, quality of Jesus' people. And, um, and in this parable, um, you have this ex, you know, you have an expert in the law. It says a lawyer came. You know, it, when it talks about a lawyer, it's not necessarily how we think of a lawyer down at the court, courthouse lawyer. Uh, this is a, a, uh, an expert in religious law. So he's more like a seminary professor who's coming and asking Jesus um, about what does it mean to love your neighbor? What does that look like? And what Jesus does with this parable is he basically takes him through how do we transform from becoming people that are self-focused and focused on just people like us and our friends and caring for our friends to being people of compassion who look out outside. How does that internal transformation happen? And what Jesus does is he basically, there's basically three challenges that he gives to this man. There's first, it's kind of a psychological, the first is a psychological challenge. Uh, you know, psychology comes from the Greek word suke, which means soul. Uh, you know, psychology is about the soul, the inner, what's happening inside. What are your motives? What, what are you thinking? And so the first challenge is what's happening inside this lawyer as he's kind of testing Jesus and asking Jesus a question. The second is a sociological challenge. What are God's expectations for, our, um, for his people in terms of social justice in the world? Caring for the, the needy and the broken and the marginalized in the world. What is God's standard and bar? What are his requirements? And the last is a theological challenge. That's, that's going to be the most important, and so you'll see that in the end. So a psychological challenge, a sociological challenge, and a theological challenge. So sorry if those, those are probably bad words to pick for the points. I know that. I, I'm regretting that. A half hour ago. So, but um, uh, so, um, um, but what we will see in, in that process is that the Christian gospel uh, uniquely transforms people to be people of compassion. We're going to see how Jesus does that. So, first, this this psychological challenge. So, you know, Jesus has this. Um, let me get a swig of this really quick. Ah, oh, where are you? Um. um so Jesus has um, this encounter with this lawyer, and they're having, they're having a discussion about the Bible. The lawyer says, hey, you know, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what does the Bible say? He says, the Bible says, love God and love your neighbor. Jesus says, okay, you're right. Do that and you'll live. And then um, verse 29 is what kind of uh, spurs on this parable that Jesus tells, um, where the lawyer says, who is my neighbor? And what's interesting about this verse is Luke, who's writing, gives us a little, um, a little bit of commentary in verse 29 uh, about what's happening internally with the lawyer when he asks this question, who is my neighbor? Um, and you see that there, he says, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Now, so the word, you know, the word that's used there for justify is a word that is from the courtroom. You know, you, you go into a court, and uh, to be justified means to be vindicated. So, you, you know, a jury kind of makes a verdict on your life. Are you, are you guilty or are you, uh, uh, are you not guilty? Are you a good person or are you a bad person? And so he's trying to uh, secure for himself. The big question that's kind of lingering in his head is, am I a good person? How can I be sure... That, you know, that I'm making something in my life. I'm on the right track. You know, have you asked that question before? Have you, have you thought of that question? Am I, am I a good person? Am I doing something right with my life? You know, whether it's in the eyes of peers, whether it's in the eyes of you know, parents or family, 
Uh, or, you know, I think if you grew up probably in a, in a church or religious context in the eyes of God, am I a good enough person? Is a huge question, am I doing enough? And it's a deep question. That's a deep psychological question. Is the problem of justification? Is my life justified? Is it good? And, um, and the lawyer is trying to kind of get a hold of that confidence. And uh, the way he does this is he asks Jesus. So Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, okay, who's my neighbor? So, I mean, essentially what he's saying is, listen, I, it's obvious I can't love everybody, right? I can't love, you know, everybody that comes along. So, you know, tell me what's, give me the, the, the bottom line that I got to do. And, uh, and he's trying to bring the bar down. And I'll tell you that whenever you're in the process, if, if your life is devoted to, I want to be a good person. That's my goal is I want to feel like I am a good person. One of the things that you will always do is you will take God's standard and you will change it to a standard that makes you look good. You know, it, you'll change it to a standard that kind of matches your life and the things that you're good at. You know, so in, in kind of Christian circles, uh, you have some people who um, are very into theology, reading the Bible, uh, you know, a lot of knowing the truth. Uh, they can defend the Bible and stuff like that. And, and they say, you know, that's, I know Jesus says, love your neighbor, do good things, uh, um, uh, serve people, share the faith. But, you know, if we don't have the truth, if we don't have that, then, uh, then, you know, all that other stuff's kind of in vain. We need to, God has told us the truth and we need to believe the truth. So what's that person doing? Is they're saying, the thing that I'm good at, reading books, I'm going to make the bar that. Right? I want to be good, so I'm going to change the bar to be something that matches me. Or, you know, you might be kind of a, uh, you know, a pious uh, prayer kind of person. You know, it says, you know, all the nitpicking about theology... Listen, that's not what God cares about. God doesn't care about the nitpicking about theology. What he really cares about is that you have a spiritual relationship with him. And, uh, and you know, even doing good things, at the bottom, the bottom line is, is, is how you, do you pray? Do you have a spiritual relationship? That's, that's the thing that really matters. And the people who are nitpicking about theology, they're, they're bothering with things that really are, are kind of second tier. What are you doing? You're changing the bar to, match, to make me look good. <laughs> that's the thing I'm good at. Or, and it's the same for a kind of, volunteerism, you know, I, I volunteer, I do good things. All those people are reading the Bible and praying, they're not doing anything that really uh, matters uh, for real life and for the real world. Uh, what really matters is what tangibly are you doing. If, if our devotion is to say, I want to feel like a good person, we're going to change God's standard to have it match up with what makes us look good and, and feel good. And so uh, what's that's essentially what he's doing here by saying, who is my neighbor, Jesus? It's going to be the people that I'm already serving, right? I don't really have to change anything. I'm already, <laughs> I'm already doing it. And, um, and one of the things that this passage shows us is that if you make that your goal in life, that I want to be good, it will, ra- it will drastically limit your ability to be compassionate. Because look at, look at verse 30 here. Uh, starting in verse 30, the beginning of this parable, Jesus says, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, 
pass by on the other side. Now, what Jesus is setting up here is you have a priest and Levite who are coming down the road from Jerusalem. So what that means is they were just on duty at the temple. And what they were doing at the temple is they were taking alms and they were caring for the poor. And they were teaching the Bible to people and they were leading in worship and the priest was offering sacrifices to God. They had a whole kind of religious devotion to God, full-sphered. And they're kind of like, what do I got to do to be good? I got to do those things and I've done them. I've made the bar what I do already. But when it comes time to God was calling them, you know, by chance, that's what Luke, Luke says, by chance they were coming by, which is a way of him saying God had put, him, put them there. God had put them there to walk by this man who had just been beaten. There was no compassion in their heart. Their life was devoted to being good, and so they made the bar that would match their life instead of, instead of a, light, a life of compassion. And... Um, I'll tell you now, you might be asking, okay, this is kind of the first psychological challenge that he makes to this lawyer, is that you're more, what's more important to you is to justify yourself than to be compassionate. Now, you might be asking, what are you saying? Don't try to be, live a good life. Don't live it, try to be good. Um, I'm going to come back to that. It's going to be kind of, I'll, I'll answer that at the end. But uh, what Jesus does instead is he, he makes sure that he keeps God's standard, God's requirements, what God expects at that high level. He doesn't let uh, the lawyer bring the level down to match his life. So that leads to our second point, is Jesus' sociological challenge. And um, I'll say that, uh, you know, in the Bible, um, you know, two kind of social problems that Jesus addresses in this text that are throughout the Bible um, are are the questions of, of racism and oppression. That these are, are two uh, issues that Jesus has a burden for, are racism and oppression. And I kind of want to look at the, both of these two things in, in, in terms of the social problems that he's dealing with. So the first is racism. And um, this, uh, for this lawyer, probably the most startling aspect of this story is that the hero of the story, I mean, it wasn't just that you know, there was a Samaritan lying half dead on the ground, but the Samaritan is actually the hero of the story, uh, would have been shocking to this Jew. I, I talked a few weeks ago about the history between the Samaritans and the Jews, that they hated each other. It was just ethnic uh, uh, hatred towards one another. And so Jesus deliberately challenges this Jew's racism by making a, uh, a, a Samaritan uh, the hero. And uh, one of the things that we need to be aware of is that one of the things that will hold us back from being a compassionate church and to be compassionate people is that, um, is that it is, we will have a tendency to not show compassion to people that are different than us. In fact, if you, uh, if you look at the Bible, the, whole, you know, the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, who's uh, writing, probably, you know, if you take the books of Romans, Galatians, 1 Corinthians, and Ephesians, four of the most important books in the whole Bible, the main pastoral concern in all of those books is that there was an ethnic diversity in these churches. There were Jews and Gentiles who were coming and trying to worship together like in here. They were all in a room together trying to praise God and love each other and serve one another. And it was very difficult. And so the main pastoral concern that Paul had is how are you going to love people and serve people that are racially different than you, culturally different than you, know, culturally different, than you uh, different socioeconomic bracket, 
And uh, that's a huge concern. In fact, you know, if you, in the early church, in the cities where the, the gospel began to take root, uh, many of the ancient cities were kind of divided up into these uh, quadrants. So that uh, different ethnic groups would have walls around their quadrant, and they'd stay in their quadrant and kind of huddle together uh, with the people that were just like them. And when the gospel came into these cities, all of a sudden you had people in a, you know, worshiping together like this, who were from different quadrants. And there was a lot of danger to climb over the wall and to go into other quadrants so that they could worship together. But that was one of the main things that the gospel did, was it caused people who never would have talked together, never would have uh, showed love or interest to, to one another, it brought them together into one body, into one family. That's one of the main things that God is expecting uh, to do among us through the gospel. Um, so the first... Um, and, and let me just say that, 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 what, that what that means, one of the main things that means for us is we ask that question, who is my neighbor? Who am I responsible for? It's not just people that are just like us. You know, that uh, if, if uh, you know, I have a young family. It's not just people that have a young family who live on my street that are, are kind of similar to me. It's uh, people in, uh, uh, generationally different. And, and we live in a world where we actually can impact you know, there, globalization and communication, we actually, our neighbors are kind of globally, uh, you know, I know that's kind of a, a, a cliche, but the, uh, that's absolutely true. We have a responsibility to all kinds of people in different situations, and so the standard is very high for us. So the, the first challenge is, is towards racism, uh, that we have a tendency to only show compassion to people just like us. The second is uh, oppression. Um, now, one, you know, in our country right now, one of the biggest questions that's being addressed is the question of the, uh, um, the distribution of wealth. You know, the, the richer getting richer, the poorer getting poorer over maybe the, the past few decades. And, um, you know, it's something like uh, if you take all the financial wealth in our country, the top 1% of, you know, the top 1% richest people have 42% of the wealth or something like that. And, um, and, you know, that's one of the big debates of Obamacare and uh, liberals and conservatives of, uh, of uh, how do we deal with this problem of the distribution of wealth and uh, should the government, uh, you know, basically take money from, from people who have money and give it to people who don't have money. And um, let me just tell you that on the one hand, there are going to be Christians, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians who are going to be on both sides of that debate. And I, I just hope that, as a church, that we know that. Uh, that um, you know, I, I, I like to watch Bill O'Reilly when I can get a chance. I, I watch Bill O'Reilly, and, and one of the effects that I've noticed, and if you if you ever uh, if you're a conservative, especially, is, is you listen to this thing about, hey, listen, you can't take money from the people who have wealth and give it to the people who don't. You know, the, the government's trying to steal money and give it to people who don't have wealth. You can't do that. That that's uh, Jesus wouldn't have done that. Aside from that question of whether the government should do that, there's no doubt that the Bible says that God's intention for his people is that there would be no one with need. This is a theme that runs throughout the Bible of, of, God, give, taking, uh, of God expecting the people who have money to give to the people who don't have money so that their needs could be, uh, could be cared for. Let me, I, I just have to read to you Deuteronomy 15 just, just to reiterate this. If among you... One of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land. 
that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficiently for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cry to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all you, that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in, the, in your land. Now, one of the main reasons uh, that, you know, I, and I... We're a, we're a, a cons- uh, Bible-believing Christian church. The, the tendencies that conservative people tend to say is that the reason people are poor is because they're irresponsible. That's the guy at the beginning that I talked about. The reason you are poor is because you're irresponsible. Let me just tell you that overwhelmingly in the Bible, the Bible does say that. If you're lazy, if you're, uh, if you're a drunk, you will become poor, and there's consequences of that. But overwhelmingly, the Bible says the reason people are poor is because of oppression. Is because, not because of their sins, but because of sins that have been done to them. Overwhelmingly. And you see that in this passage, uh, that you have a guy, that the reason he's poor, he has nothing, he's half dead, is because robbers came and uh, beat him up and took everything he had. That's his situation. You know, I'll tell you, um, when we were living in uh, uh, St. Louis, we... Uh, um, we lived in kind of a, you know, maybe a lower income neighborhood, mixed, uh, mixed neighborhood. And uh, there was a guy that uh, came to our door one day. His name was Rashad. And uh, it had snowed, and he was trying to make some money to, by shoveling people's uh, driveways and stuff like that. And so uh, he shoveled our driveway, and I was out there kind of working with him, talking with him. And, and we, we kind of built a relationship with Rashad. And it turned out Rashad had uh, been expelled from his school. And uh, he worked on the other side of town at Boston Market, and he uh, took a bus about an hour and a half to get to his job on the other side. You know, he's probably 17. Uh, on the other, you know, an hour and a half on the other side of St. Louis to get to, this, to his job. And so he really needed to get his license. So, I, you know, I gave him some driving lessons. You know, it's it pretty funny. You know, I, I said, okay, Rashad, I'm going to show you how, how to do it. You know, blinker on. Uh, and so, okay, now, you know, Rashad, it's your turn. So he hops in. He's just like, puts the seat back. And he's just like, you know, weaving in and out of cars. I'm like, Rashad, that's not how I showed you. You know, 10 and 2. And, um, and, and so, um, but, you know, as this time, as he's kind of weaving into traffic, and we talked a little bit more about his life, uh, it turns out that the reason that he was expelled was for fighting. You know, he always got in fights with people. And, um, and part of that is because he grew up in a home. He grew up just a block from us um, where his dad was a crackhead who he didn't know. His mom said, I can't wait for you to be 18 so I can get you out of the house. Um, and his brothers uh, made fun of him, mistreated him. He had no one in the world. And, he's, and so he said to me, he's like, what I've learned is no one's looking out for me. I've got to look out for myself. And why do you think he's getting in fights? Someone's going to challenge him. He's going to assert himself. And you look at it and you say, you know, on the surface, as a, as a statistic, he's some kid who got expelled for fighting. 
And we might say, oh, he's irresponsible. That's why, that's why he's going he's to throw himself into poverty. But the thing is, he's been sinned against. He's been wounded. And um, one of the big um, messages of this passage is that part of discipleship, part of compassion, is mending the wounds of the broken. Mending the wounds of the bruised and the hurting. Um, and you see that, you just see that with the Good Samaritan. That's just, it's just oozing over with the mending of wounds. I mean, just look at verse 33 again. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. There was something inside him that was turning. That word there is like your, your innards. His innards was kind of turning. Uh, and he went to him bound up, and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay, pay you when I come back. So there's this sense of, of, of that compassion looks like taking the oppressed, taking the people who have been sinned against, and, uh, and binding up their wounds with oil and with, uh, with the love of Christ. Now, um, one of the things... Uh, well, let me, oh, I'm going to skip that. Um, so let me just kind of summarize where we are so far in this sermon. So far I've said, point one, is that you're not as good as you think you are. If you want to be a good person, you're just changing the bar uh, to match your life right now. So you're really not as good as you think you are. And secondly, what God expects of us to push back racism, to bind up the wounds of the broken, is so far uh, higher than you ever dreamed. It's so, more be- so much more beautiful and, and, uh, than you, you could have ever thought. That, that that's what God wants for his disciples. And, you know, if we ended right there, you, you would walk out and we would never be changed. There would be no transformation. If that's our vision, is, well, uh, we're self-righteous and God expects more from us. I'll tell you two things that would happen. On the one hand, you would say, okay, well, God cares for the poor. God wants us to uh, do things. And you would look at the um, 2.5 billion people in the world who live on $2 a day or less, and you'd say, what are, 2.5 billion people? I can't, what am I going to do with that? I can't do anything. Or you just look at Bellingham, the problems of Bellingham, you say, I can't do anything with that. It's too big. And you walk away and you go about your life. Or you say, you know, Nate's right. We've got to do something. You know, the standard's up there. Let's do it. And you do it for, out of guilt. You do it for a week. Or, you know, maybe, maybe you'd go to, for six months. Maybe you'd do six months of hardcore. I'm going to care for the poor. I'm going to bring the marginalized into my house. And then you would peter out and you'd be back, back where you are. And uh, let me just tell you that um, the brilliance of this passage that Jesus is telling is really in this third point of the theological challenge. And this is where the transformation comes from. So this is the third point, the theological challenge. Now, um, now when Jesus tells a parable, and you're listening to a parable, Jesus tells a story to his lawyer, one of the things that you're supposed to do is you're supposed to find yourself in the parable. Where am I in here? And so, you know, on the one hand, you might say that the lawyer is the Levite and the, the priest and the Levite who walk by, who are kind of self-righteous, and he's supposed to identify with them and say, oh, that's, that, he's talking about me with those guys. Uh, but then on the other hand, Jesus says to him, you see what the Samaritan did? Go and do likewise. You're supposed to, you're supposed to be like him, right? But uh, if, on face value, this guy, he's not a priest or a Levite. 
And he's not a Samaritan. He's just a Jew. If anyone, he's the guy lying on the side of the road. Uh, he's the guy who's, who's getting beat up. And I'll tell you that um, what the early, you know, St. Augustine, 4th, uh, 5th century uh, theologian, how he read this, he said that uh, Jesus, who we are, we're the guy on the side of the road, and Jesus is the good Samaritan. And a lot of modern commentators say, oh, that's not the point. No, you're supposed, to be the, you're supposed to be like the Good Samaritan. But let me tell you two reasons why I think Jesus is the Good Samaritan. First of all, when it says that the Good Samaritan uh, looked at him and had compassion, that word for compassion, actually those two words, looked at him and had compassion, every, almost every time that appears in the Gospels, it's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the one who looked at the crowds and had compassion on them. And then secondly... Jesus takes the guy and he brings him to an inn and then he leaves. Or or the good Samaritan takes him to an inn and leaves him there and then he leaves and he says, then I'm going to come back and I'm going to reward you for taking care of him. Who does that sound like? Jesus left and then he's going to come back and he's going to receive all the people that he's been mending and broken. So uh, um, the uh, the big thing for us to first come to when we come to this passage is that uh, before we run out and start caring for the poor, we got to see that we're the bruised, we're the beat up, we're the broken people who are on the side of the road, and that we need Jesus to come to us and to mend our wounds. We need to come into a church. And you know, what Augustine said, the church was the inn. That's what this place is, is that Jesus is just bringing people who are wounded and broken and bringing them, and he's, he's just all expenses paid. Jesus is giving us gifts so that we can care for one another and mend one another's uh, uh, bruises. And let me just tell you why that's important for two reasons. First of all, if Jesus is the Good Samaritan and we are not, what that means is we look at the 2.5 billion people and we say, you know, I can't do anything about that. But I know that Jesus can. I know that Jesus has people in every single nation of the world and already doing things, and I can play a part in what he's doing. I can come alongside what he's doing, and I can believe in Jesus' power and not my power, that Jesus is the Savior and I'm not. He's the hero. He's the one who can rescue people, and I'm not. And so that gives me courage. I can, I can go out there. But in terms of the question of um, that thing about should you try to be a good person, is your goal in life to be a good person? What the gospel says, my goal in life is to realize that I'm bruised, I'm sinful, I'm broken, and Jesus looks at me and he doesn't walk past. He has compassion. He mends my wounds. And so that when we go out into the world and we're serving the poor and we care for the needy and the broken, it's not because we say, oh, we're good people and we're going to go help the needy people who are irresponsible. That's not what we're saying. We're saying we know what it's like to need grace. We know what it's like to need grace. And we're just like you. You need grace if you're going to make it in this world. And we needed it from Jesus, and you need it too. And so that's why we go out into the world. It's not to prove that we're a good person. And when we have the grace, that's when compassion stirs in us. And I just want to close with this one point. That In that, that book I was telling you about, that Tim Keller book, one of the things that he says that I think is just is really spot on, he says that if you, are, if you love Jesus, you know, there's a lot of people who love Jesus and aren't caring they're not showing compassion. And what he says is that he believes that if you really believe in Jesus, that means there is a heart in you for the marginalized, for the, uh, for the people that are different than you, for the people who are hurting. There is a heart in you that's just sleeping. 
And when you begin to realize that, that Jesus comes in all expenses, there's nothing. He's just like this good Samaritan. Everything that's needed, he gives his own life for you to mend you and, 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 uh, and heal you. That heart will uh, wake up and it will come alive and you'll begin to do those things. And so the key is, don't walk out here and say, wow, God's got a lot of guilt for me. Uh, for That bar is way up there and I think I'm, I'm way down here. That's not the goal. The goal is to continue look at how bruised we are and the grace of Jesus, and that will stir compassion in us. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we long for you uh, to awaken that heart in us, and we long to be a part of a church that we can say, uh, um, the broken are here, that we as the broken have come here and found healing. We ask for your Holy Spirit to do that among us. And uh, we trust in you. We thank you that you are the Savior and that we are not. And we thank you that we get to be a part of what you're doing. So uh, we ask that you would do that through this small church as we reach out to this community. In Christ's name, amen.